Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. This is the first episode we've done since we've all been quarantined at home. So with many of my listeners wondering, what can we do to keep safe, stay healthy, and build immunity, I decided to bring on our favorite doctor for this program, Dr. Deborah Gordon. She's a functional medicine physician from Ashland, Oregon. Deborah, welcome back. Hey, Aaron. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We appreciate always having you on the show to bring some medical information to our program with your slant of functional medicine and your involvement with the Price and Paleo communities. Helpful points of view at this time on <laughs> both of those. So first thing I want to ask is, what do you think is the most important thing to do during this time of the pandemic? It reflects the fact that this is a constant work in progress. So my mind has been thinking about it a lot, attending to this question and trying to formulate answers that are helpful because the bottom line is, oh, you should try to be as healthy as you can physically and mentally during this time. And that goes without saying that's true at any time. But what does it mean during this time? It means that, yes, there is a real physical threat. You have to prioritize the ways in which you are going to be healthy in the face of that threat. But on a mental, emotional level, there's a threat as well. And I think it's fueling some of the conspiracy theorists that I normally would have more agreement with than I do at this point. So we have the physical threat of the pandemic, and we have the mental and emotional threat of perhaps lost income, lost social outlets and communication with other people, putting people at home in actual danger if there's domestic abuse or if they're really running out of money. So trying to be empowered as much as you can to have a certain sense of mastery over those variables in your life that you can change and cutting yourself some slack. So if if your weakness is ice cream, which I would generally advise against, okay, figure out how can you have it once a week. So if that's your treat that used to be a night out with friends and that doesn't work anymore, you know, how do you work in enough of a treat so you don't just let all your good intentions go by the wayside, but maybe just one or two of them? I think it's a balance to consider at this time. It is a balance. And I also think that as we're seeing a lot of the advice we've been getting everywhere has been changing in a lot of ways becoming more strict. I remember first it was a thing of simply around the workplace, be more careful of cleaning up your stuff and works not providing so much snacks like fruit and things. They would provide more packaged snacks around there. And then it becomes a thing of becoming optional <laughs> to uh, work at home to then being required to work at home. So we do see a constant change. And yes, uh, what you bring up about eating ice cream once a week, if that's your weakness, you feel you need it. I am hearing a lot of people saying that they are gaining weight through the quarantine. My first thought about that is, of course, you know, not everyone can go out and buy an ice cream maker, but I think there is a lot of advantage actually of doing this quarantine at home that you should try making more food yourself. I know for me, that's actually helped. And 
I think I'm actually eating better during this time of quarantine. I'm not going out with friends and I'm actually <laughs> eating all the stuff that I preach actually more often. So part of the thing is I think you could actually <laughs> learn to make some of these great foods yourself and it could actually be better. It could be actually a great time as a lot of people are finding that this is a time to learn how to cook new foods. Exactly. How to cook new foods. And <clears throat> I'm doing a Zoom meeting from my practice this week with the personal trainer because exercise is important for your mental well-being and your physical well-being. And it's pretty easy. You know, I live 20 minutes out of town, 20 minutes from where I like to go rowing. I'm on the rowing team. And if I have a busy day, it's easy for me to decide I don't have time to exercise today. So, being forced to be at home and finding an exercise routine that I can do at home, same thing as cooking at home. It gives you more options that you might actually be able to rely on after the quarantine as well to keep yourself healthy. Similar with me, I've now been exercising at home because I've been working out with a personal trainer at a gym for a couple of years now. And the home thing has its pluses and minuses. I think the biggest thing is I no longer have the excuse of, oh, I don't want to drive to the gym because it's right there. Of course, <laughs> the disadvantages are I don't really have a full gym set at home, so there isn't as much I can do at home. So you kind of have to learn how to deal with that. And it's involved partly learning some new exercises, doing a little Google. You can really find a lot of different exercises to do if you just do a little search. So it's not impossible. And it's, it's something to think of after the uh, quarantine is over, if I still want to belong to a gym or not, or maybe just purchase some more weights and do it at home. It also has gotten me yeah. running outside, which I hadn't done in a long time. And that's kind of nice thing too. I think there's advantage to that. Although I do miss the different variations of cardio exercise you can do at the gym. So it's still kind of up in the air, kind of how I feel about this kind of exercising at home versus going to a gym. I think both have a plus and minuses advantage. Like I said before, well, sure, it's near to me, of course. I could also find myself possibly just doing something else at home, slacking off doing that, whereas like paying for a gym, sometimes you have motivation to do that. So I think each have their plus and minuses, but nevertheless, I've still found a way to do it while the gyms are all closed now. I have a TRX setup at home and, um, you know, those are, those are the oh, yeah. straps that you mm -hmm. secure. Oh yeah, my trainer has me do those at the gym. <laughs> I've been really unimaginative and done the exercises my daughter taught me a long time ago, and I've just kind of stuck with those. But one of the great things about people's response to this pandemic has been to give away so much information. There are more free videos from TRX gym trainers on their website. So that's the plus side. So I was doing a new workout, something that a bunch of exercise that I hadn't really done before. On the bad side, I know if I was in the gym, I would do the full 30 seconds of the hit high intensity, whereas this guy couldn't see me that I slacked off at 20 seconds and kept myself a break. So you kind of lose the motivation of doing something in an atmosphere where everybody's working hard. But I'm glad to have the video. Yeah, that's the other things. I'm doing these without my trainer. Of course, I've actually discussed with her maybe sometime we can do a training Zoom session so she can actually see what I'm doing and see that I'm not slacking off, like you said, not doing the full 30 seconds for an exercise. So that is also a thing you can do. It's, it's great that we have this technology of Zoom. And 
I think that's another function of it. We think of it a lot for like business meetings or even Zoom parties, but you can even do it for something like have a personal trainer watch you over a Zoom or a FaceTime. You know, in my practice, I've had telemedicine as an option, but I haven't really used it with local people who live in and around Ashland. But of course, now that is the only option. And People were at first resistant, but in general, people have liked, oh, I get to just sit in my living room and I get to see their living room. We get to continue this interaction and they don't have to let everything slide just because we can't meet together in the office. So that's definitely, I think a lot of doctors are trying to figure out what's the smart way for their particular practice to incorporate telemedicine. And do you see yourself doing more telemedicine after this has ended and people are going out again in public, do you think some people will prefer to do it that way? I do, and I like it too. I have a nice home to stay in, and instead of going to the office three days a week, if it was one or two days at home, I think that would be great. (laughs) You know, I'll finally get these telemedicine skills down, like how to schedule the appointments, how to transition between them. You know, there's a kind of a ritualistic way in the office that I help people get up and end the appointment and go out and greet new people. What's missing in telemedicine is some degree of physical touch, which is nice. And I'm not sure we're going to go back to that even if we meet in person. Right. At least not right away, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. That's something people need to realize is that it's going to be a transition. And yeah, when we go out in public, it's not going to be just the same right away and I don't know. Do you think there'll be some elements of when we do go out in public that it will never be the same? Oh, I think that's probably true. Uh, Certainly the people that I respect the complexity of their arguments the most, thinking about how we come out of this lockdown, the people who see it most complexly and with the greatest respect for both human need and the power of the pandemic will never go back to normal. And some of the normal we're kind of not even responsible for. So I think one of the reasons we have these animal to human jumping viruses is because the human footprint has expanded so far into wild territory. It would be great to roll that back. It would certainly, oh, climate change. Wouldn't it be great if we all drove as much less as we've been driving during the pandemic? You live in Southern California, don't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, hasn't your air quality been markedly different? The photographs certainly make it look markedly different. Oh, absolutely, because I've not been driving at all. I mean, I'm one who was driving 10 miles to work and then 10 miles back every day, and now I'm not doing that, and I'm having all of my groceries delivered. The only really driving I do is I did one pickup about a little over a week ago. Other than that, haven't driven anything, and the only other time is just drive my car a little to make sure that it's all working and I'm not letting it die out because it's not been in use. And can you see the difference in the air quality when you have gone out? Oh, yeah. Oh, very much. Yeah, I can definitely tell difference in air quality because of it. Ironically, Ashland, which is an idyllic little mountain town, you think it's great, but it's in a valley that's dissected by Interstate 5, on which 30,000 cars at least travel every day during normal time. So The air pollution in Ashland, the Rogue Valley, is about the highest in the whole state of Oregon. So we, too, are benefiting from less driving. Nice. So you were talking earlier about how you disagree with some information that others are giving that you'd normally agree with. What are some of the types of advice others have been giving in regards to COVID-19 and how to handle it that you disagree with? I'd say this is where it 
really gets out of lifestyle medicine and gets into the area of public health and immunology, I think my disagreement is with wishful thinking about in any way approaching this as just another flu. So there are people that, for instance, in the vaccine questioning community, which I think of as instead of, you know, what the press refers to as anti-vaxxers, I think of as a vaccine questioning community, and they tend to be generally skeptical about mainstream medical perception of the contagious illnesses for which we've already had vaccines. So they tend to think, oh, let's not get all overblown about this. I wouldn't get a flu vaccine. I'm not going to get this one. And I'm able to circulate in the community as much as I do during flu season. But what's different about this pandemic is it just comes on like a more like a grease fire than a paper fire in your fireplace that's going a little bit out of control. And all the people that are in the front line for the grease fire of this pandemic are suffering horribly. So I think it's any advice that minimizes the differences between the virus driving this pandemic and other viruses that we confront in our daily lives. It's more contagious, it's more aggressive, it's more unpredictable. So saying we should go out and get some herd immunity, the doctors on TV that are saying, ah, well, it's an extra tour. You know, if it was behaving like every other virus, and we would have two or 3% more mortality over a year, and it would dribble in and dribs and drabs all over the place, and it you know, would have a slow pace and be fairly predictable. I wouldn't think that Dr. Oz was such a fool. But how can he not have seen what happens in emergency rooms and ICUs? Because it comes on like a grease fire, you know. An ER that's used to having six patients now has 15, and a dozen of them are on ventilators. That's just not fair to our sense of community with each other, and it has the potential to get so much more out of hand. So that's really more where I disagree. Where other colleagues of mine are, you know, we talk about different vitamins or different herbs or different nutritional advices that we might offer. I have maybe disagreement, but I don't feel like strangling those people. (laughs) I feel like strangling the viral uh, minimizers, the COVID-19 minimizers. Those are the people I really have strong disagreement with. Then we get to food and we can have more respectful disagreement. (laughs) (laughs) I would say the minimizers are where I have the biggest disagreement with too. People that try to say, oh, it affects less people than the flu and that was a lot of false information. I assume that a lot at the beginning. Are people still trying to make that argument? I think the White House, who says liberate Michigan and liberate Wisconsin and supporting all the people who are screaming at the shopping malls to reopen and to impeach their governor, who's, yeah, I think there's still denial on that. And um, I watch enough evening news to get a glimpse of those people. I And frankly, you know, just on social media. The only peers I've seen it among are the people I would consider my peers in the vaccine questioning community. This is going to be a tough one when the vaccine comes out, Aaron. I am always more interested in diet and lifestyle than either vaccines or medication. I don't want to handle these patients in the ICU, and I don't want to be on the team developing the vaccine. But I do want smart people to do it. And I worry that the sure to get a fast vaccine will 
fast track the safety testing, but I don't really know at all that that's going to happen. But if suddenly there's a vaccine available in four months, you know they've overly fast tracked it because that can't happen. But the vaccine takes 12 or 18 months. I don't get vaccines, but this is a vaccine I would consider. My metabolism is healthy, but I'm in an age group that's at risk. Gee, I don't know. Maybe I'd get this vaccine. I think that makes sense. Yes. And so you brought up about nutrition. And I think that's what a lot of listeners are wanting to know from this episode as folks of the show is nutrition. So yes, now we're getting to that part. of <laughs> To the fun part. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the appropriate omnivorism to handle this. What would be your recommendation for nutrition to build immunity at this time? So in addition to the, you know, the nutrition part, of course, works hand in hand with getting good sleep, doing that exercise we talked about, figuring ways to mitigate stress, but then it really does matter what you choose to eat. And I think of it kind of starting out from this broad platform of, in general, I want to always be thinking about enhancing my immunity. And that means from the foods I choose to the supplements that I take. And when it comes, the foods I think that are particularly important are, I think of that good proteins from real animal sources, vegetables and fruits, and in that order, not the other order, and minimization or absence of sugar, which almost should be a food group in and of itself. You know, they ought to have part of the food triangle be empty and that should be sugar or just have a little, little tiny piece of it for people who, you know, just have to have their ice cream once a week. That's not my weakness, but for some people it might be, I don't know. So, you know, good animal sources of protein and vegetables and fruits. I bet that's what looks like on your plate most times too. Absolutely. And actually a lot more vegetables specifically, fruits a little bit, but a lot more vegetables than people think. A lot of people seem to think of these ancestral diets as eating a lot of meat, and that's actually not true. I actually, since following this, I've learned to eat a lot more vegetables. I follow the Nutritional Therapy Association advice of meat should never be more than a third of your plate. (laughs) I like that. So yes, so that's what most of my meals are. And I like that primarily we talked briefly before we started the show about carnivores, and I think there are reasons that some people choose that diet. But in general, if you or I are thinking of that meat's a third of our plate and vegetables are two-thirds of our plate, it's not so much that having more meat would be the problem. It's that if I ate two big pieces of steak, I wouldn't be hungry enough to eat the vegetables that are going to give me a lot of the nutritional cofactors and the fiber that would work in my gut so that bacteria would ferment and produce butyrate or ketones or different other worthy products of bacterial gut fermentation. I mean, I never want to ferment like a cow or a baboon, but I do believe there's value to having a good diverse gut flora, and it's harder to do with a skimpy vegetable portion. Yes. Well, and I say that there is actually fermentation from eating the cow. It's just a different way. It's the fermentation you get is the grass that the cows fermented, and that's why (laughs) we're supposed to eat 
meat, specifically grass-fed meat. Mm -hmm. Right. And I don't want to ferment as much as a cow. I only have one stomach and a skimpy little intestine, but it's got some work to do (laughs) if we can let it do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And in regards to vegetables, are there some vegetables you'd recommend over others as the best ones to eat in order to build immunity, but also just to maintain health? I told you I was getting a little distracted before our call today. I've spent a morning in a genetics webinar and reminded again of the real value of dark leafy greens. And it's specifically for vascular health to enable our bodies to make nitric oxide, to keep our blood vessels healthy, which is the basis of everything. So green leafy vegetables best maintain our vascular health. And then bringing in color brings in more of the antioxidants with the caveat. So when we were kids, you know, Bugs Bunny, or when I was a kid, Bugs Bunny would chew on a carrot and we talked about eating carrots to reduce night blindness, really associating carrots with vitamin A. But half of us, we can eat orange carrots if we want to, because there is a benefit from carotenoids, the beta carotene in carrots. But Many people, and I think it's more true among women than men, that about 50% of people cannot get vitamin A from those richly colored vegetables. So you're getting something from them, but you actually, to get the vitamin A, you have to go to that animal portion of your plate and make sure that, you know, at some time in the day, it includes egg yolks. And at some point in your week, it includes some good grass-fed beef so you can get retinol, the really effective form of vitamin A in humans, rather than beta carotene, which is a precursor. And with my genetics, I don't turn that into vitamin A very well. So leafy greens, lots of colors, and variety. So, you know, the cruciferous family is probably what I end up eating the most. Me too. Is that right? Yes. And it's a thing that I used to hate those kind of vegetables. But (laughs) when I found how you can roast, oh, I love the cruciferous cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, broccoli. I love it all when cooked right. When cooked right. So Erin, this is a funny story. My daughter's now in her mid-30s finishing nursing school. But when she headed off to college, she was very independent. And she didn't really call me every day or anything like that. And I got a text in the middle of my work day. And I was worried something was wrong. So I called her, said, what's up? What do you need? She says, I just wanted to tell you, I like Brussels sprouts now. Because I've been pushing in them at her her whole life. <laughs> Something about college, because they were cooked right for her, made them right. And so the importance in Brussels sprouts. So each of these um, vegetable families you recommend for a different benefit. So leafy greens for vascular health, bright colors for antioxidants. And the benefit with cruciferous vegetables is to help with um, detoxification that happens in the liver. And it, there's two big benefits from cruciferous vegetables. There is actually the altering of adverse pathways that estrogen can take. And, you know, both men and women have estrogen. I have maybe a lot more than you do, but you have some estrogen and gasoline and its fumes go down the same pathway. So is it going to take a favorable pathway or an adverse pathway? And then the final step of detoxification can involve the use of sulfur-based glutathione. And we get sulfur from animal products and cruciferous vegetables. So now you've got this two-thirds of your plate over the day or the week has to include a little bit of all those three 
And I'd say the final consideration is the starchy vegetables, which are everything from winter squash, which is not very starchy, to potatoes that are quite starchy, and some balance between enough so that you feel satisfied and it helps your body maybe deal with cortisol that could interrupt your sleep, but not too much, or it converts to sugars and can adversely affect your interest in the rest of your food because the starch and sugar is so much more satisfying, almost like ice cream. So I think there is a role for starches there too, and that really gets individualized. What about you? Do you eat much starchy vegetable? I do, especially because I exercise and I feel that that gives me good energy then for that. So I eat starchy vegetables. I think it's important to include some. Probably the most common one that I eat is sweet potatoes. And do you eat sweet potatoes or do you eat yams? Good question. I believe they're sweet potatoes. They're called yams, but I don't think they actually are yams. I think they call the orange sweet potatoes yams because they look similar to that. But I believe I've looked this up and what we call yams here, I don't think are truly yams. I could be wrong. Yeah, I thought it was the other way around. The thing about sweet potatoes, we have a little diversity in our house because I tend to like all the ones, that whether they're called sweet potatoes or yams. Um, but my wife really doesn't like sweet potatoes. So if we get whatever you call it and it's not very sweet, great. She can eat it maybe every once in a while, but not very often. Whereas I would have them several times a week. So they're too sweet for her. And um, they're not too sweet for me, but there's a range of sweetness in these potatoes that are not baked white potatoes. Yes, I'm not sure if mine actually are sweet potatoes or yams, but nevertheless, I do like the ones that are the more orangey color. To me, those taste like what I think of sweet potatoes, because interestingly, the ones that aren't, they just kind of taste like regular potatoes. <laughs> right. I'd say somewhere in between. And I think I bet somebody could get into a whole nutritional analysis of all the different kinds of potatoes. Whereas I just really think, you know, do I want to roast it tonight? Or can I throw it in foil and bake it on the grill uh, outside? How am I going to bake it? What do I want with it? Have you ever done the whole 30, Aaron? I haven't done it personally, but I am very familiar with it as I've met a lot of people through the community that are on it. Yeah, I've done it a couple times. And we did it as a household once about 10 years ago. And my wife lost her sweet tooth completely. And I don't think has had any sweets since then. And that's when sweet potatoes kind of went off our menu. But the first time I did it, russet potatoes were not allowed in the Whole30. And in the second and third times I've done the Whole30, they were allowed. And I think, again, that's an individual food when it comes to white potatoes, so-called white potatoes, which could be red on the outside or yellow on the outside or thick brown on the outside. They're white on the inside. For some people, they're a very potent stimulator of an autoimmune process, which could be arthritis or could be something else. That's, I think, one of the original foods that people associated with getting arthritis from potatoes. Yes, I think for a while, potatoes have been very demonized. And then there was the thing of, well, have sweet potatoes. And then now it's even a thing of russet potatoes are probably the potatoes I consume the least because there are other dishes that call for more regular potatoes, non-sweet potatoes. So often what I use for those is either like the red potatoes or the yellow potatoes. Mm -hmm. Those are the easiest. You can just cut them up and yep. steam them in a pot or something. But I like a good russet potato. 
I do too. <laughs> With a little butter and sour cream and salt on it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I could go even further. Butter, sour cream, salt, cheese, bacon, loaded baked potato. Oh, my goodness. Why bother with the potato? Just have the stuff on the top. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it's a way of getting to that. <laughs> it's just a way of getting to butter and bacon. Right. But I will say that's a real source of calories, which is great if you're exercising. And when I say calories, when you have the starchy calories and the fatty calories together, it's great for replenishing muscle glycogen if you've been exercising. But if you haven't been exercising and your muscle glycogen stores are full, your body's going to store that as adipose tissue. So that's the balance of, okay, enough carbohydrates so I can sleep tonight or in your case, so I don't lose weight when I'm lifted. You know, you don't want to lose muscle mass by lack of fuel when you're working out nice and hard. You want to gain muscle mass and lose fat. Anyway, you know, that just ends up being titrated individually. And you're talking about the different ways to prepare potatoes. I wanted to go back actually about the ways to cook cruciferous vegetables. Do you think cruciferous vegetables are better cooked than consuming raw? In a word, yes. And I bet you and your listeners already know why, which is that you know, raw cruciferous vegetables are goitrogens, meaning they interfere with the normal production of thyroid hormone. Eating cruciferous vegetables raw occasionally is, of course, fine. That's not as if they're toxic or bad for you. But getting in the habit of snacking every day on raw cruciferous vegetables would be a great way to get a thyroid nodule or goiter, in my opinion. So do you avoid them raw? Pretty much. Yeah. Like I said, once in a while, like if I'm at a restaurant and they serve raw kale, I'm not going to like freak out that they didn't cook it. I'll do it once in a while. But pretty much all the stuff that I eat at home, it's it's always cooked. And the other thing is I never really liked broccoli or cauliflower raw. And I thought I didn't like it. But due to some trendy restaurants having these roasted or even fried, which, yeah, I mean, the oils they fry may, may not be the best. But the one silver lining of that is learning that there is a way that I can eat those vegetables and actually enjoy them. And I find that they are better cooked and specifically roasted versus, yes, yeah, steamed. I don't like them so much. But when you prepare them right, so in addition to tasting better, is an added bonus to also hear, oh, that's the healthier way to eat them too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think roasted cruciferous vegetables are an art. And I do think it's best suited to Brussels sprouts, but I think they're all good that way. Oh, Brussels sprouts are the best that way. Yes, Brussels sprouts, the one that no one in my family wanted to eat before that. My parents Mm -hmm. would all the time serve me broccoli because of its benefits, especially that's supposed to be protective against colon cancer, and I hate eating it. But yeah, my family would never feed me Brussels sprouts. I still don't know that they're that into it, but I am now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could come over for dinner anytime. We have it at least a couple times a week. (laughs) Oh, that would be great. Yes. Do you ever do Brussels sprouts and bacon? A little bit, but uh, I'd say bacon ends up more on our breakfast menu than our dinner menu. Same here. I used to do that for a little bit, but I found more Brussels sprouts go good with like a nice steak or something like, especially Brussels sprouts because it's a cruciferous vegetable that I really like. I like to have my favorite cruciferous vegetables with then sometimes, because I like to get a variety of animal proteins. So something like a chicken breast, which isn't the most interesting, I like to pair it with the best cruciferous vegetable around. So something like Brussels sprouts or also I really like cauliflower. I'll often pair it with that. Broccoli, which is 
a cruciferous vegetable, which I do enjoy too, but even roasted not as much as the others, that I can put with like my favorite protein, like a steak or roasted duck. Oh, I haven't actually thought about that, but I think I tend to do kind of the same thing. You've got to have kind of an interesting vegetable if your protein's a chicken breast. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We've grown heritage turkeys before and they were great. And we harvested them and cried through the whole thing because they're really sweet animals. So we got a couple of pet turkeys, but we harvested the Tom because he wasn't that sweet. He had problems. And we cooked up a turkey and it was just nice to remember that oh a really well raised turkey breast has a lot more flavor than a chicken breast which i think means it has more nutrition so in general i think the it chicken is less nutritious than beef which is less nutritious than fish although they just really offer different benefits so Okay, this is, I'm really going to go off on a tangent here, but I'm sure you'll understand it. No problem. <laughs> and appreciate it. And I think our listeners will too. There's a ranking of nutrient density when it comes to protein. And I was horrified to learn that of all the foods I loved, turkey's at the bottom of the list. And chicken is not much above that. And duck, which you just mentioned, is above that. And then that led me to think, oh, no one's done the proper nutritional analysis of heritage turkeys or heritage chicken, but you can just tell because the flavor of their meat is so much more complex than the regular store-bought conventional ones. You just know that complexity is not just rant. Nobody puts spices in that turkey breast for me. It's just that it actually is a more naturally evolved animal, more like a grass-fed cow. But what I was going to say is this poultry, which is less nutrient-dense than beef, even grain-fed beef has advantages that poultry doesn't have. But then when you go to grass-fed beef, you get the advantage of everything, the more healthy saturated fats and a greater array of different kinds of fats and even some real vitamin A. The healthiest foods in this paradigm, and the paradigm was really how many calories do you have to eat to get a sufficient nutrient load? Fish is up there higher because of the omega-3s that are higher in fish than in any other source of animal protein. But higher even than fish is fish eggs. And that's because, do you eat sushi? Do you eat the salmon roe? I do, yes. I like specifically, I like sashimi and poke. That's usually my favorite ways to have it. Mm-hmm. But the ones where they make nigiri sushi and they might have those big fat salmon eggs on top of it. Do you ever eat salmon eggs? Oh, I haven't had that. Ah, so the interesting benefit that those provide, they can have omega-3s in them the same way fish do, but they also contain phospholipids, particularly DHA and I believe DPA, that are brain healthy. So when I was a kid and was served random fish as brain food, you could do a whole listing of what's the most nutritious way to eat food from the sea, and it would have to be fish eggs on top, and then what they call the smash fish, sardines, mercury, anchovies, salmon, and herring. Next, because they have a lot of good nutrients, but they don't have the detriment of accumulating mercury as much in their tissues. And then you go down from there, and then you get into the bigger fish like tuna, and they don't have much of an advantage 
over your healthy duck or grass-fed beef. So, eat, but it's not just linear. Like you can't just say, oh, fish eggs are always better than grass-fed beef because grass-fed beef will give you conjugated linoleic acid, which is a very valuable fatty acid that's hard to get in other ways. So it really has to be a branching tree. If you want to be optimal, so some people just don't like fish or fish eggs and they can do without or supplement, but a really healthy diet can't be described in a single meal. It has to be a pattern that, yes, I eat fish and yes, I eat red meat. And if I eat pork, it's been well-raised and then might throw in poultry and ideally it's well-raised and well-chosen. It gets so complicated. It's great to have access to stores that appreciate that or to have lots of freezer space and to know some good animal raisers. Yes. And something else that I would think, and I wanted to know your thoughts on in regards to chicken, the white meat and the lower end, do you think it makes a difference that we eat chicken with the bone in and the skin on? Huge difference. I think huge difference. And, you know, again, if you have a sensitive palate, you can taste the difference. When I go to someone's house and they're cooking boneless, skinless chicken breasts, you can just taste that there's nothing of value in it. So there's the benefit, and we were talking about this, I think there's two real benefits from cooking with the bone and cooking with the skin. And one of them is a better fatty acid profile, because really, even though chicken, it has a good array of good fatty acids, but it's also the collagen proteins that will leach from the bone out into the meat, whereas if in cooking, But if you separate them before you cook them, you're less likely to get that particular addition and particularly the amino acid glycine that's in the collagen proteins that come out of the bone and connective tissue. So, yeah, that's a great way to do it for red meat and poultry to cook on the bone and pork, I guess, too. Yes, I think it's amazing how so often hand in hand, the more nutrient dense, healthier way to eat an animal protein is also the tastier way because you'll talk to chefs and they'll always say, oh, you got to cook it with the skin on, the bone in. Another thing that goes hand in hand with health and taste is air-chilled chicken. We learned this on the farm tour at the Wise Traditions Conference last November that air-chilled, one, chefs at restaurants, they want air-chilled chicken. But the other thing with it is if you air-chill it, it's healthier because if you wash them in water, there's a thing that like if one of the chicken is infected, the whole, the other chickens will also be infected. So air chill is another thing I think it's important to look for. I heard it was better at preserving nutrients and taste, but I didn't think of that. Like when they're washing it, aren't they washing it in water? I guess, you know, one of the other things we've learned about coronavirus, people say, can I just refrigerate my food and won't the virus be removed from it by refrigeration, which made me just think of those chickens being washed and cold water that oh, cold water shake my head <laughs> yeah right no viruses love to be in the refrigerator <laughs> they don't like to be cooked though however so i think people can i rinse my vegetables off more than i have before but if i'm gonna cook them i don't worry about it me too and my fruit yes you read my mind to the next question was while refrigerating doesn't really do anything does cooking food help in case there was any contaminants that touched it yeah in my office i'm adjacent 
to a gym that has a full infrared sauna that I use a lot with my patients who are going through detox of various sorts, primarily from mold or heavy metal toxicity. And he's debating about keeping the sauna open during this time, having people make individual appointments. So you're just in there one at a time rather than sharing the sauna with somebody else, which sounds like a great idea in general in my mind. And the question was, so the temperature in a 160 degree Finnish sauna is clearly enough to kill viruses. What about a far infrared sauna that's only 130 to 135 degrees? And we were bantering this back and forth this week because we couldn't find data on it except on a very not reputable source. So we were just didn't know if the sauna was really a safe place to go or if viruses might survive from one client using it to the next. This week, I was invited that I could attend the UCLA Neurology Grand Rounds in which they were talking about how coronavirus affects the brain. And they we're talking about the survival of the virus, and they just listed off a series of different conditions which are unfavorable to the virus. And they're the ones we use to clean our house. Bleach is a good disinfectant, 70% alcohol. And they just listed without a citation, but hey, this is UCLA Neuro Grand Rounds, 133 degrees Fahrenheit, the virus cannot survive. So go into your far infrared sauna, make sure it's at 133 degrees before you get in it, and then you can turn it down a little bit if you want and know that you're not gonna pick up viruses if somebody else has used it before you. Yes. And so I wanted to go back a little to your part about avoiding sugars, which is something that I think is very important. We've talked about on other podcasts and certainly something with the ancestral health community that's stressed. Avoiding sugars, would you extend that to also natural sweeteners such as honey? I would. I think you're splitting hairs. That's reasonable. Honey is far more nutritious, but they're micronutrients. But they do have micronutrients, whereas white sugar has none. Coconut sugar probably has some micronutrients as well. But, you know, if you're thinking of making a pie, if you were just going to eat the apples, you'd get more micronutrients than the, or, or even better if they were berries, than quibbling over whether the honey might provide some micronutrients. So I think from a nutrient point of view, you can make very tiny little differences between all the sugars. But when it comes to metabolic effect, I think you can't distinguish much between the different sugars. And even, and this is something that comes up in because we're checking sugar and ketones a lot in our cognitive patients. So when you're thinking about metabolic health, the conventional medical recommendation is, oh, if you've been drinking Coke, just switch to Diet Coke because then you won't consume any calories. But metabolic health has to do not only with the sugar you consume, but your body's response to it. We've known forever Pavlovian dogs. Dogs not only salivate at the approach of food, but humans start responding to the anticipation of an ice cream cone as if they'd already eaten it. They make insulin, which is the fat storage hormone, just thinking about the ice cream, and they make insulin, many people, not everybody, in response to a diet soda as much as they do to a conventional soda. So so metabolically speaking, I think all the sugars and even the non-caloric sugars should come under serious scrutiny and nutrient-wise, eh, fine points. I think it's better just to limit them all and then pick the sweetener of your choice. I think probably maple syrup would be the sweetener I would split hairs over and say is probably the optimal 
sugar. It's sucrose rather than fructose. And it does, if you get it unrefined, have some micronutrients in it. What's your favorite sweetener if you were to have something sweet? Probably coconut sugar because it has a similar texture to regular sugar. Mm-hmm. But it's a little bit more complex. It's less refined, and it's probably a little bit more like brown sugar. Right. Well, I think it's the easiest to substitute just when you're like baking because it's like similar texture. I guess that's probably why it's my favorite. Uh-huh. Have you ever used sugar alcohols like erythritol or xylitol, which really look and feel just like white sugar, but they're non-caloric? Those ones I've pretty much avoided based on the advice that I'd read about those. I think they're pretty hard on some people's guts, but I think they're pretty equivalent. I don't think there's a big difference between them and stevia. Stevia actually has an additional potential problem. One of my patients revealed this to me. I had her check her blood sugar before and after having some stevia. And she said, oh, yeah, my blood sugar really went down. So stevia, my body thought I was eating sugar. So I decided to read about stevia. And I realized it's in the grass family. My patient realized this. I didn't. She told me. And that she's allergic to grasses, and she thinks that eliminating stevia from her diet actually helped her tendency to asthma. Interesting. One thing I've noticed about stevia is that there are a lot of different types of stevia, and sometimes stevia has other ingredients added, and I think sometimes it may even be mixed with some of these sugar alcohols. So do you think it makes a difference what type of stevia? Like, there's even an issue with stevia in its pure self? Yes. And all those really would go back to the point I made at the beginning talking about sugar, like you can make a bunch of distinctions and you or I might like the taste or respond better or worse to different kinds of stevia. But really, it would behoove us to just have less. I used to say when I was a kid that I had 32 sweet teeth. You know, I didn't have one sweet tooth. I had 32 of them. And I'd say I'm down to a couple. So I'm pretty happy with 85% chocolate and not having ice cream every day like I did in my junior year of college. (laughs) So it's just better to lose your sweet tooth and develop your bitter, savory, salty portions of your tongue and then pick whatever kind of sweet you really like the best or that doesn't aggravate you. I would agree. I think the key with it is these natural sweeteners are better. So if you're going to have them, you should use those, but don't overdo it. And even the natural sweetener should be a treat once in a while. Exactly. Same page. People get in a habit of putting a sweetener in every cup of coffee. And you know, the the same thing, and I would say, goes what we do so that we can drink that coffee that keeps us awake every morning or whatever, so we can get to the work that we're doing. I'd say just a different kind of sweetener that people put in. And remember, it it has a very prominent sugar in it is dairy. So lactose is a sugar that my body doesn't digest very well, but I still love the taste of something associated with lactose in my coffee. And it can be, I have a patient who I suggested she take the dairy out of her iced tea and coffee and she lost 10 pounds. Oh, wow. So just developing your ability to tolerate our addictive caffeinated beverages without honey and maybe without regular dairy. Dairy is an interesting food. I love dairy, particularly like full fat dairy. And I think there are nutritional reasons to defend it. Vitamin A and a good saturated fat profile with conjugated linoleic acid. I mentioned that before. And I've really 
had to acknowledge that beyond lactose intolerance, there really are people who are intolerant of the casein that's in, you know, the distinction between A1 and A2 cows. Right. Right? I mean, that's part of the Weston Price understanding. So I think there's a lot of people who are sensitive to A1 cow dairy of any sort, cheese, yogurt, wonderful, beautiful yogurt. Yeah, you might be sensitive to that casein. And I do think there's even a smaller proportion of people who are also sensitive in different ways to A2 and goat dairy. But that's less problematic than A1 dairy. And so we talked a lot about nutrition and the importance that it plays in building me during this pandemic and just nutrition in general. Do you think there's also some supplements that are important to take? Yeah, I'm kind of a supplement nut. <laughs> I do. And the bandwagon I've been on for decades is vitamin D, that you do have to know your vitamin D level. If you start to get sick, it's great to increase it, your vitamin D intake, no matter what your level is. So I think you're General vitamin D level should be between 50 and 70, and you should know what it is winter and summer, so you know how to supplement during those times. Depending on your latitude and skin color, it'll be different. And then I use 10,000 units three times a day for three days if I were starting to get sick. So vitamin D is the main immunity supplement, but I think we can't leave out vitamin C. You know, there's good evidence coming out of China and some of the European hospitals where they're using eight grams of vitamin C intravenously in the ICU. It's been studied a little bit for sepsis in general and particularly in use in this virus and keeping up your vitamin C level short of what gives you diarrhea. Those are the easy supplements. And then beyond that, there's a whole host of more herbal, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory supplements. And I'd say the two most prominent and that I have the strongest sense that they're going to be both effective for this and possibly help with other things and not do any harm. So meeting those criteria would be quercetin and elderberry. Quercetin's easy. You can pay a lot or a little for quercetin. You're still probably getting a good product and dosages are three to 500 milligrams. And the actually active ingredient is about 10% of that capsule. But quercetin is great. It's a really broad-based antihistamine. It works better if you take it with nettles. It's anti-inflammatory in a variety of ways and helps a lot of the mechanisms that happen at a kind of intracellular level with both our resistance and just to stay healthy. So I like quercetin. And then elderberries, just so you know what I left out, D, C, and zinc are, I would say, the main ones. So D, as I said, C, enough not to give you diarrhea. And zinc, and zinc is a little tricky because if you're eating lots of red meat, you should have a zinc level that's between 70 and 100. And if you don't, you probably have an issue with absorbing it from the food you're eating. So, huh, that's problematic. What problem there should be fixed? And it can be supplemented. And if it doesn't come up with supplementation, a little bit you want to back off because some people can over-supplement with zinc. And then it all goes into your brain and it doesn't stay in your immune system anyway and it becomes a heavy metal in your brain. That's not particularly good. So C, D, and zinc. And then quercetin, 
and elderberry, I'd say, are the five. And you know, I have another list of 10 on the article, I think, on my website, because there has been quite a bit of work looking at RNA viruses, of which this coronavirus is one, and the mechanisms by which they hijack our DNA in our cells and the different steps we can take to interrupt it. So, for instance, one of the supplements on that list is glucosamine. Oh, great, I take glucosamine anyway because I have arthritis. Wonderful, then maybe you don't need to take quercetin or elderberry. You're doing something that's working at that same level of interrupting the virus's access to our DNA. But the ones I like are quercetin, elderberry, D, C, and zinc. And there's plenty more, but those are good basic ones. And what would you say is the overall role that nutrition and supplements play in staying healthy during this epidemic? In other words, what percent does it make in terms of staying healthy during this time? We talked about it a little bit, the observation that they're making that many of the people who are affected by COVID-19 horribly, they are loosely described in the media as having pre-existing conditions. But what they mean is you're either very old, in which case your immune system really wished you'd eaten more consciously and taken more supplements because your immune system does just get tired as you get older, or they're younger and they're quite overweight. Like I saw a story about a family was lamenting the death of their young son, COVID-19, and they showed a nice picture of him and they said, but he was perfectly healthy. But perfectly healthy in this country means two thirds of this country is obese or metabolically deranged in some way, some degree of type 2 diabetes or obesity. That's just fertile ground for coronavirus to move in. So what if somebody is overweight now and I'm telling them, oh, you know, that makes you at greater risk? Do they just feel caught between a rock and a hard place? Well, a little bit. It means they should consider themselves more vulnerable, even if they're only 30 or 40. And it's never too late to take some handle of that and decide. One of the attitudes I like to offer to patients for whom I might be suggesting a radical dietary switch is to think of kind of life as a playground and you're going to go over and hang out in the jungle gym for a while. And the jungle gym for an obese person at this time might be to decide what would be the weight loss strategy that they really think they could stick to for two weeks, knowing that they can't easily leave and go to the grocery store. They're just going to have to eat what's in their house. What could they do that feels empowering? You know, my patient who took the dairy out and lost 10 pounds, that's great. She's really mastered partial degree of what she needs to master to be healthier in the face of this coronavirus. So that's a very long way of saying, I think nutrition has a huge role, both chronically and acutely right now, validated by ICU data in being healthy in the face of the coronavirus. So it sounds like nutrition does play a big role in building immunity during the time of this pandemic. Yeah, I think both what you eat and what you decide to push away from. I'm not a big believer in eating food off little tiny plates to try and trick your brain, but kind of what you were saying about the nutritional therapy approach to it that, gee, okay, well, I'll just make a smaller portion of meat. I'll only have half a potato and I won't put butter on it and I'll eat a big plate full of green vegetables. So you can meet both the I want to get the nutrients from my food criteria of a healthy meal and the I'm also thinking about maybe I should drop 10 pounds here because obesity's 
a major risk factor for COVID-19, seriousness. All right. Well, that's a lot of good advice as far as nutrition, exercise, and supplementation for how to deal with COVID-19 during this time of the pandemic where we're quarantined at home. We're just about out of time. But before we go, tell the listeners a little more information about the webinar that you'll be doing next week. We're doing a Zoom webinar and we're doing a healthy at home series. And this is going to be part two in the series. If they signed up now on my website, drdebramd.com for my newsletter, they might get a newsletter today or early next week inviting them to join because this is on Zoom, meaning you have to join it by invitation. And what we're going to focus on this week is more the, I'm going to do a little bit of COVID-19 updating and then talking about the benefits for your general health and your brain from doing exercise, because my practice is largely on brain health. And then the other half that's going to be directed by the personal trainer at our facility, showing people what they can use for weights at home and how they can do a workout safely. So I'd love to have some of your listeners there. I think that would be great. And if they want to read more general information, just learn about who you are and read some of your blog articles, such as your one on the coronavirus and others, tell them the website where they can go to read that. Right. So it's drdebramd.com and doc, D-R, Deborah spelled the long way, D-E-B-O-R-A-H-M-D.com. Love to have them. Yes. And we always love having you here on this program. So thank you for coming on. And just want to remind everyone, hoping that they're staying safe and staying healthy. Thanks so much, Aaron. Great talking to you. That's all for this episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. To make sure you never miss any of my podcasts, go to iTunes and subscribe to The Appropriate Omnivore. You can also listen to all of my podcasts at the website appropriateomnivore.com. There you can find recipes from the guests I interview, plus all of my articles covering lifestyles in the world of real food. I'll see you next time. Until then, my pantry is officially closed.